Hallöchen and welcome to Air Castles, the podcast where we try to understand different cultures one topic at a time. My name is Joanna, I'm from Austria and I'm recording today with my good friend Olivia from the United States and I'm not just recording today with her but every episode. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> I don't have any witty comebacks in this scenario. That's that's so unlike you, Olivia. I'm I know. I had I actually I think it was because I had this like foreign greeting I was gonna start with to like throw you off and be funny, and then you added that last thing, and I was like, "What? I can't say that. What do I say?" Uh, uh. Which and language? Now here we are. When you say foreign, greeting? I think it's Malaysian. You think? <laughs> I don't know. Oh my god! Well, hit me. Go ahead. Greet me in a foreign language. Oh, salamat pagi. What? Can you repeat that? <laughs> salamat pagi. Oh, how do you know that? Where does it come from? <laughs> An anime. Oh! <laughs> okay, so on to the title of this episode. Olivia, do you, do you want to introduce it to our <laughs> listeners? Yeah. So I requested, as I often do, I specifically <laughs> requested that we call it See You, Space Cowboy, because our theme is space, and um, it's a reference to an anime that I really like called Cowboy Bebop. Uh, so plug there. That's a good anime to watch. It's a really good, like, entrance, like, gateway anime, if you've never watched anime before. Maybe I'm gonna watch it. I only watched one anime in my whole life. And no, no, no. Which one? Not even just one. No, I I watched some Ghibli movies, Studio Ghibli movies. Oh yeah. Okay. So, yep. But these, I think these are so generalized and so <laughs> so common that they don't really count. But the other one I watched, I think before I was going to Japan, was is it called Your Name? Because this was a really big international oh, hit. Oh yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And that's I watched that because I thought you know I can't really go to Japan with ever having watched an anime besides Studio Ghibli movies. So I did that. <laughs> your name's, yeah, your name's a good one, too, because there is a, a fair amount of, like, traditional Japanese culture worked into it. Because yeah. you know how the girl, like, has the shrine and or whatever that she helps out with. Yeah, the girl, girl the like, the main character, the girl, is living on the countryside of Japan. Yeah. yeah, it was a good movie. It is a good movie, yeah. Okay, so... See you later, Space Cowboy? See, see you, you, Space Cowboy. See you, Space Cowboy. Just see you. Okay. Mm -hmm. See you, Space Cowboy. Olivia, this time the stage is yours. You're going to start. <laughs> oh, that's right. Um, okay, so I went back and forth. I was a hot mess trying to pick my topic for this episode because <laughs> I realized how many things I'd like to talk about. But what I ended up with, or rather who I ended up with, oh. is the science fiction writer Octavia E. Butler. She is one of the most critically acclaimed and successful science fiction writers ever, pretty much. She lived from 1947 and passed away in 2006. A lot of people would probably know her. I think her most famous works are like Kindred and The Parable of the Sower um, or Parable of the Tenants, which is the second book for that series, or the, ooh, the Brain something series. Let me see if I can find it. Pattern, pattern, patternist, the patternist series. That's another big series of hers. What's her, like her first nationality? She is American. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, she's best known basically for taking like sci-fi and fantastical elements and then making them very kind of grounded and real world. She's very, very focused on, on humans and characters, makes them kind of complex and believable, like these more out uh, otherworldly fictional elements. She makes them very believable and kind of bitter in a way, tends to be not cynical, but certainly realistic and perhaps pessimistic. You know, um, she brings in the complexities of gender, race, anthropology, trauma into stories about time travel, aliens, dystopia, even vampires. So she's, she does she does a lot. Um, she's not kind of a just space sci-fi writer or just apocalypse sci-fi mm-hmm. writer like some some writers tend to have their certain kind of subgenre wheelhouse within science fiction. But she dabbles in like everything. I think it's so cool when the characters are like realistic characters in a book and yeah when they seem human in terms of that they could be real people I think a good character development and a good character in general in a book makes so ha- like make ha- makes half of the story like then you're already safe ki- kind of safe with a good book you know that's what a good book yeah. is about like not having not only having a good plot but also having good characters yeah so like I think a really good example of her work is Kindred, which is probably her most famous. That's the novel of hers that I've read. I've read two of her short stories and mm-hmm. Kindred. Um, and Kindred is basically about a young black woman in the 70s who accidentally gets transported back in time onto a slave plantation in Maryland in the 1800s. Um, and so she keeps going back and forth in time between the modern day and this slave plantation um and it's kind of about the complexities of of slavery and obviously racism and dealing with that and just like survival and you know i don't know it's 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 obviously going to be a lot of stuff but it's it's very good so that's the kind of thing where it's kind of almost historical because she spends so much time trapped in the past and it's kind of about examining historical realities but she examines that through the sci-fi element of time travel um so i think that it's a good example of how she kind of marries a lot of different aspects of of genre together Mm. to create this kind of unique whole that really makes you think they challenge they challenge you it's also good that she's incorporating important topics like slavery and bringing attention to those through a science fiction yeah well she's and she's a black woman so things Mm. like race and stuff are are very important to her and end up in a lot of her works Mm -hmm. and a lot of her protagonists are are uh women which also obviously plays to her because i i was just looking up some quotes by her because i wanted to like end with the killer quote i'm not actually doing that Mm -hmm. um but i just i she had whole a whole one about how she got really into science fiction magazines because that's how science fiction stories were primarily published for a long time was through Mm -hmm. serialized magazines and obviously a lot of the heroes in those stories were men and you know she was like you know i'd like to not just be the one on the sidelines but i want to be able to identify with the people doing the stuff so anyway so that's a whole thing but kind of backtracking to who she was before you know she was a writer and just kind of talking about her life she, like I said, she was born on June 22nd, 1947 in Pasadena, California, um, in which Pasadena ends up being a 
pretty important part of her life. She's very much a California girl, it seems like. She was the only child to a housemaid and a shoeshine. Um, but her father, the shoeshine, died when she was seven. So mostly she was raised by her mother and her grandmother. Um, she grew up in a racially integrated neighborhood. So as a result of that, even though it was during segregation, she was still able to be exposed to a lot of different cultures and things like that, which definitely formed how she viewed um, race and alternative communities and things like that, disenfranchised communities, uh, etc. Um, she was very socially Oxford. Uh, <laughs> okay. Very socially Oxford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She went to Oxford, and she was social there. No. She was very socially awkward. She had a lot of social anxiety, and she was dyslexic, meaning um, she mixed up the words when mm-hmm. she read them. Like, words will appear backwards to her, and letters will appear jumbled together and things like that. So she didn't do well in school, and she got bullied. So school just in general wasn't that great for her. Didn't have a lot of friends. So as a result, she spent most of her time reading and eventually writing at the Pasadena Central Library. So she loved reading about fantasy books and horror stories, and that's where she got into the science fiction magazines. So that's where she really discovered a love of fiction. And from an early age, she was already writing, and she had a big pink notebook that she would write stories in. (laughs) Um, At age 10, she convinced her mom to buy her a typewriter so she could graduate from the big pink notebook. Um, and and she began her first novel at the age of 12 because I, I think this is funny she watched a movie called Devil Girl from Mars and then she thought first she thought oh my god someone got paid to write that and then she was like I could write something way better than that and she was like 12 so then she did you know and um and she, like, showed it to teachers and things like that. And she didn't get a lot of encouragement necessarily from her family, particularly, like, extended family. I, I think her her mom and her grandma were pretty supportive, even though they thought that she really didn't stand a chance because of her race and her gender and dyslexia and all sorts of other things, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, she obviously <laughs> ended up making it work. She first graduated from Pasadena City College with an associate's degree in 1968. And then her mom wanted her to get a steady job, like, as a secretary or something like that. Mm. But instead, she took a lot of, like, kind of short-term odd jobs, like a dishwasher, a telemarketer, a potato chip inspector. Potato chip (laughs) inspector. (laughs) It's true, like, in a factory. Because then she would wake up at, like, 2 a.m. to write, and then she would go to these jobs that didn't necessarily need her to be, like, at full you know, mental capacity or attention or anything like that. So she purposefully, even though she didn't like the jobs themselves, obviously, mm-hmm. they inhibited her the least from writing. And uh, and then her writing inhibited, like, could afford to inhibit her from these jobs because they weren't as demanding. And then she continued her education by going to UCLA Extension, which I don't know what that really is <laughs> mm-hmm. but I she studied UCLA. through ucla <laughs> yeah 
I just don't know what that extension is. Because this was obviously before, like, online learning. So I don't... Mm. That's what I would have thought if it was, like, 2000s, you know? And for that. Anyway. Anyone who doesn't know UCLA, what does it stand for? It's, it's University the University of, of California. California, Los Angeles. Ah, California, yeah. Los Angeles. Okay, UCLA. Mm-hmm. Which was confusing because first she went to California State University, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then she switched to University of California, Los Angeles. Hmm. very confusing um uh anyway so she went to a writing conference for that was specifically for minority writers and that's where she met a very another famous science fiction author author named harlan ellison who was really impressed by her work so ellison really pushed her to attend this six-week writers conference in pennsylvania for for sci-fi creators and then that was, so that was obviously a big turning point in her life. But then that six-week conference was a major turning point because not only did she meet a lifelong friend who's a fellow writer named Samuel R. Delaney, she sold her first short stories at that conference. Aww. One to Harlan Ellison and then one to some some other person. <laughs> Even though the other person is the one who actually published it. Harlan Ellison's collection never actually got published. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, and then after that success, she began her first big series, the Patternist series. So from 1976 to 1978, she published three books in three years. And then, and that's, and it was after that third book came out that she decided that she could become a full-time writer. So she stopped doing other jobs and was just writing. Then she wrote, Kind or Kindred came out in 1979. So she was like, she was, uh, she was on fire for those years. And then after she wrote Kindred, which is a standalone book, she then went back to the Patternist series and basically finished it off with two more books. And then she hit the 80s, and that was kind of like her golden age, because then she was writing a lot of short stories and stuff, and they were winning all these big-time awards. Like, the Hugo Award is probably one of the biggest um, sci-fi... I think it's specifically sci-fi short story mm-hmm. awards. And she won it twice at least in the 80s if not more oh wow um one of them for blood child which is uh one of the ones i've read by her so that was kind of exciting and then she she was also working as a creative writing teacher she would teach like workshops and things like that or at the conferences like the ones she was used to go to um then in the 90s she wrote the parable of the sower and later the parable of the tenants uh, in 1995, she became the first science fiction writer to win the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, which included a prize of $295,000, which I meant to look up in euros, but I didn't. But that's a lot, especially it's, for it's that time. It's a lot. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's, that's a fat prize. Um, and she, I've. <laughs> I'm not sure how many science fiction writers have won it even past her at this point, um, but I don't think it's many. But she was the very first one, which is really mm. neat. Um, and as I mentioned, so I've read Blood Child, which I don't really remember what Blood Child was about. But I also, I'm pretty sure that we read a sh- short story by her called Speech Sounds, which is really interesting, where there's this idea of there's this disease um, or this virus that passed around that removed people's ability to speak and read and write. And it was really interesting to see, like, how society and people operated um, under those constraints, those new constraints. And it was quite interesting. Mm. 
That sounds like a so horrible that's the, disease. Oh my god. Right? Yeah. That's like my um, nightmare. And, and that goes back to um, kind of a lot of her themes. Uh, Wikipedia actually had a really like thoughtful little outline of a lot of her like most popular <laughs> themes and things like that. Um, but one of the ones that stuck out to me the most was this idea of survivalist as hero and this idea that basically enduring hardship and doing and like being able to adapt and change in order to survive is kind of like heroic in its own right because their protagonists often have mm-hmm. to do that where they have to make some really hard choices um, just to kind of endure the injustice and the suffering and things like that and uh and that's what makes them interesting, you know? Hmm. Other things she often writes about are um, hybridity, uh, adaptation, as I said, disenfranchised and alternative communities, and often the contact and the struggle for coexistence among different races or species um, or things like that. Like her, I think it's the parable of the sower series or maybe i'm thinking of a oh no no no! it's xenogenesis one of her other series that i think she wrote in the 80s is called xenogenesis and that has to do with like humans and aliens living together um you know so there are a lot of things like that that she writes about Hmm. she (laughs) this kind of this kind of made me laugh here's if you want to get a a better grip maybe about how who she is as a person she described herself as comfortably asocial a hermit in the middle of Los Angeles, a pessimist if I'm not careful, a feminist, a black, a former Baptist, an oil and water combination of ambition, laziness, certainty, and drive. <laughs> so that's how she sees herself. And I think that's as eloquent and uh, and provocative as you would expect. And very creatively written. I know, right? Like the writing is very creative. <laughs> yeah, she's, I mean, she's so good. She's so good. Um, so obviously, unfortunately, she's, she's passed away at this point, Mm. but if you go to Huntington Library in Pasadena, the, basically all of her, like, writings and documents from throughout her life, even from, like, childhood all the way through her life, uh, letters and, and notebooks and all sorts of things like that are preserved there. So, and they, I know they did an exhibit in, like, 2017 dedicated to her and all this stuff, so you can have access to um, a lot of uh, her her various documents and things, oh. which I think is really neat there. Obviously, she's, I mean, like, I could go into all the awards that she's won, but there's just too many. There's so, <laughs> it's so much. Um, unfortunately, I was, so I was looking into adaptations of her work, and there hasn't been many, which is why I was really close to doing another science fiction author named Arthur C. Clarke, who was one of, uh, another one of, like, the greatest sci-fi writers of all time, also passed away, um, and he wrote the script for 2001 A Space Odyssey and its novelization later. Hmm. Um, so he was kind of the brains behind that groundbreaking award-winning film, you know. Yeah, because but, I heard uh, about him before. Yeah, yeah, but, um, and that's why I was kind of thinking about doing him, but I don't know. I was just feeling drawn towards Butler, so I chose to do her instead. There is, uh, there was some sort of opera, like a tiny opera that was written and performed based on Kindred. One of her novels, I think in the Xenogenesis series, is currently being made into a TV show, apparently. That's cool. And... And I want to say there was some other 
not a movie adaptation, but it was some other very small adaptation of, oh, no, you know what? Okay, I'm, I'm mixed up. So I think one of the books in one of her series got turned into an opera. Kindred got turned into a graphic novel. That's it. And then that, and that was really successful. That's a, mm. that's a thing that you can still read. I think it was on the bestseller list for a long time or something like that. Um, and then that, that other novel is being turned into a TV show right now. So there are a few things coming out, but it's not a lot. Mostly she's, she stayed pretty much within the kind of greater fiction, literary, sci-fi community are mostly the people who would know about her. But she's a big name within that circle. So yeah, that's it. That's it. Yes, that's that. The yeah, that's it. She uh, she doesn't have a ton of adaptations, but I have a feeling that more will be coming. Oh, I feel like she will. Her work will just get more love, and uh, spread out to greater audiences or to f more audiences, I should say. Hopefully, uh, with time. Yeah, hopefully. It's really cool. I think that you picked a person again. Because I feel like, have we ever, have we ever, oh yeah, you talked about a couple of per uh, of people with um, yeah. the oldest person in France, but I think mm -hmm. it's really cool and, that uh, you chose it for this topic, because I definitely Rodriguez. didn't expect that. <laughs> I know, well, I was trying really hard, because I feel like I tend to do places probably the most, mm -hmm. so, I, so for a long time I was looking at a famous um, kind of... A, astronomy observatories particularly mm. in the middle east was what kind of what i was getting for but i was like well i just did places and i feel like i do places a lot and i just feel like i'm due to do a person again so that's why i did it i like to try and mix it up between oh, places thanks. people and then like activities mm. slash festivals slash well thank you for researching practices. it it was really interesting and really cool to hear about thank her. you for listening <laughs> so as the listeners are listening to this summer solstice and that's my topic and 2020 is on the 20th of june yeah 20 saturday yeah <laughs> and yes. in german it's called summer sonnenwende and yeah so in case any german person is listening to this that's what summer solstice is and i decided to research that because it also obviously has to do with space and there are a couple of really cool traditions around the world you know which people nations countries do and i thought it would be cool to research what people are doing at this time of the year yeah i'm really excited i'm really <laughs> excited to hear about this so just a quick recap in terms of what is summer solstice. So summer solstice is the longest day of the year and the officially first day of summer. Even though meteorologists don't recognize it as the first day of summer because, you know, there are these set dates every year and summer solstice obviously changes each year as it's dependent on which is the longest day concerning on, you know, the relation between the state, the position of, the earth and the sun and you know how it's tilted and stuff like that right so yeah. it changes every year and yeah and for reference winter solstice is the shortest day of the year and that's when yeah that marks the start of winter but not in the common sense that we usually 
you know, that we celebrate the start of winter. I think it is on the 21st of December is the start of winter, how we celebrate it. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really close to Christmas. That's mm-hmm. what I always think about. What's important to know about summer solstice, though, is that it's celebrated on the 20th of June this year, only in the Northern Hemisphere, because I watched a video about this. I really recommend it. It's, um, it's going to be in my sources. It's a video from National Geographic on YouTube. And it's just a very, very short three-minute explanatory video in terms of the space aspect of it, like how just a, a visual representation of summer solstice and where the Earth is positioned. And I thought it was really interesting. And it once again, I knew about this, but it kind of reminded me why there's the Northern Hemisphere and the uh, Southern Hemisphere and they're so opposite in terms of literally their opposite which season there is, you know. Right, yeah. Yeah, so um, it's really interesting to see so, the space part of this. Wait, so I have a quick question, because mm-hmm. I'm... So, winter solstice for them is summer solstice solstice for us, right? So yes. they'll be having their longest night of the year. True. When we have our longest day of the year. True, yeah. I didn't think of okay, this, but good. yeah, I'm exactly. Not... Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to make sure I wasn't... I wasn't sure if maybe they had a different day or anything. Like I'm pretty that, sure it is, because it's... the most sense to me. It's literally the complete opposite. So I would guess that it's the same because the thing is that, you know, the Earth is turning around the sun, is constantly going around the sun, and the Earth is tilted a bit. And if you take your hand vertically and tilt it a bit, and then imagine it going around, you know, at some point the tip of your hand is going to be very close to the sun and at another point it's going to be very far away. You see what I mean? I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm doing it right now. Yeah. Visualizing it. Putting my hand in a circle. So it makes sense that it's complete opposite because as the tip of your hand is closest to the sun, the bottom of your hand is going to be farthest from from the sun. Farthest away. And vice versa. Whack. So that's that's the magic behind summer solstice and winter solstice. Mm. So as I was researching cool traditions of summer solstice around the world, there were two that came up a lot, which was, first of all, UK traditions, and second of all, Swedish traditions. So I'm going to talk about those two today. First off, a tradition in the United Kingdom, or not even the United Kingdom, but specifically Stonehenge. Do you know what Stonehenge is, Olivia? Yes, it's those rocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> that are in like the circle that they think is we don't really know what it is, but don't they theorize that it was some sort of like calendar or something like that? Exactly. So there are huge or, or stones clock. in the countryside of England and they're about five thousand years old and they're very very famous landmark of the UK and a lot of people travel there when they go to the UK because it's a very famous sightseeing spot and as you said you did a good job there (laughs) it's not clear (laughs) why they are there but I'm gonna get to that later one reason why people believe that they're there but coming to the facts first of all so that's a common place where people go to for summer solstice and each year about uh, 10,000 people go there on summer solstice and watch the sunrise as our ancestors have done for millennia, literally. Oh, so it's that is really cool. A very old tradition and people have done it for a long time. 
So the question is, why do people do that, especially in Stonehenge? So Stonehenge is supposed to be a giant astronomical calendar or an observatory of sorts. But there are many theories as to why Stonehenge is there, but that's one theory. And there are many alignments between the sun, the moon and Stonehenge. The way it's built up basically and located, the way the stones are located. And one thing that's happening at summer solstice specifically is... So yeah, you can imagine it being a circle and there's stones in the circle, in a circle shape. And there are a couple of other stones splattered around and some are even outside of the circle. And on summer solstice, based on the position of the sun rising that day, there is, imagine, three big stones, like one to the left vertically, one to the right, and one laying horizontally on top, you know? And then, if you look in between those stones, you can see a stone that is located outside of the original circle of Stonehenge and just splattered somewhere. And that's called the heel stone. And on summer solstice, if you look through these specific three stones and look at heel stone, the sun is rising exactly in that like vertical line. Like it goes up the heel stone where the heel stone is located and goes straight up through the kind of gate shape and goes, yeah, straight up basically, as I said. Every year? Yeah, especially every year is exactly at summer solstice based on the position of the earth. Right. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And so the idea behind this is that as the sun goes up, Everyone who's standing inside of the circle, the first rays of sunshine of that day are going to be in the circle of Stonehenge. And that's why so many people go there at summer solstice to, you know, see this spectacle happening. And yeah. And what's also really cool about this is usually there's there are barriers so that you can't really go to Stonehenge. Uh, I've never been there, but apparently you can only watch it from afar. And on that day, that's one mm-hmm. of the very few days where they actually remove the barriers and you can go directly to Stonehenge. Oh, and as wow. I mentioned before, there are like 10,000 people each year and you can even touch Stonehenge. And it's a very cool feeling, I would imagine, being there with so many people and experiencing, you know, the sunrise. And it just yeah. being really cool. I can't. I mean, I gotta imagine though. Probably out of those ten thousand, probably only a thousand people are gonna be like anywhere even close to the actual Stonehenge, and then probably it's just kind of like on the outskirts around it, but still even just like being in the vicinity, I guess is is really cool. Because I was also thinking like, well, how many of those people can actually enjoy like looking through at the heelstone? You know, like I gotta imagine that's a very specific you know viewpoint <laughs> to yeah position to be in and mm-hmm. only a few people would get to enjoy that that's right and as i mentioned before so our ancestors have done it for a long time and waited in the middle of the circle you know for the sun to rise and yeah and like one quote i found online was that it is an event unchanged by time which i thought was a really good quote yeah unchanged by time <laughs> It's very, like, Japanese. What? 
Well, you know, you think about like the Wakayama Fire Festival that we went to. Yeah. Where they have these festivals and practices where they just do it because they've always done it. And even if you don't really know the reason why anymore, it's it's like But they do do know the reason why. No, they don't. Remember we had a whole thing about cuz I did my research and they had ideas, they had theories about why we did it or why they did it, but they didn't actually know. Are you talking about Wakayama or about yeah. Stonehenge? <laughs> I'm talking about Wakayama. I'm not talking oh, about Oh, no, no, no. I talked about Stonehenge because you said, yeah, because they oh. just do it and don't have a reason why. But they do have a reason why for at Stonehenge. That's what, that's what I was talking about. But I, guess the, but I guess the idea of doing it because it's always been done kind of thing. Is... <laughs> Isn't that the thing but I, you're, every no, single I know you're tradition? right, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's right. what traditions are, Olivia. <laughs> yeah. right. That's amazing. But usually, like, well, no, I shouldn't even say usually because that's not necessarily true. <laughs> I'm just saying sometimes you know I the origin this. of things and you're not doing it just because you've always done it, but because you're respecting that origin or you know what the origin I don't know. Okay, I'm going to stop talking now. It's fine. I'm stupid. <laughs> I love this. So anyway, that's what people <laughs> do at summer solstice in Stonehenge. And the second thing is Swedish Midsummer. So Midsummer is just a synon- synonym. Yeah, synonym for uh, summer solstice. Cinnamon. Cinnamon. <laughs> Cinnamon. Synonym. Basically the same. I love both of, both of them. I love being able to eloquently express myself in the English language, in any language, and use cinnamon, <laughs> cinna- synonyms, and I love cinnamon <laughs> on dishes. <laughs> Synonym. Trippy. Very trippy. <laughs> so, Swedish Midsummer. First, a quick disclaimer. I found all of this information on the official Visit Sweden website, and a couple of those infos are really funny, and I literally double triple checked whether i was on the official website but they described it in such a funny way and especially the video they attached to the website it was so funny that i was like this can't be the official website because i looked it up on youtube first and then i came across this video this explanatory video and it was so funny that i was like no that can't be official and then i went to the visit sweden website and they literally linked the same video and i was like well (laughs) i guess it's legit (laughs) It's legit. <laughs> okay, so summer, uh, summer solstice in Sweden, or basically Swedish midsummer, is a very big tradition. And it's, quote unquote, a holiday devoted to eating, drinking and dancing. And it is second only to, the, to Christmas in terms of holidays, in terms of how big mm. you celebrate it. That's what the source said. So it wow. seems to be really important. And it's happening anywhere outdoors in Sweden. So you can see it happening in parks and people celebrating in parks. But mainly the main location is on the countryside. So cities are generally really empty at Swedish Midsummer because it's supposed to be celebrated in the countryside surrounded by birds, fields, Mm. trees and water. Right. Okay. So here's a guide how the festival works, how you can imagine it. First things first, you need to make a midsummer garment. And that's usually a flower crown or a wreath. And wreath in German is Kranz. For everyone who doesn't know, I didn't know. 
and <laughs> they eat a good lunch and drink beer and nuppe. And nuppe is a Swedish vodka served ice cold in a shot glass. And <laughs> it was so funny, the video, because it was like, yeah, so you always sing a short humorous song, which is called nuppe Wieser, before you drink nuppe. And <laughs> quote unquote, we, we recommend two beers per nuppe. This will improve both your singing and your Swedish. <laughs> website said that yeah they said like in the video they oh said my that gosh. because it was the video was titled what was it titled something like how to do swedish midsummer for dummies but it was for dummies and that's why i thought it can't be legit but it was literally linked to the official swedish website and also the the graphics in the video were very professional so you could see that it was professionally made but it was so funny also in terms of like swedish midsummer for dummies it's just was it incredible? Was it part of the actual Four Dummies series? Because that's like no, a legit it wasn't. Thing. Yeah, that's what I thought oh, at okay. first, but it wasn't. It was just a funny adaptation to how to celebrate Swedish Midsummer. That is great. That was really great. And so another thing that's really important for Swedish Midsummer is that they have a maypole. I don't know whether you're familiar with the maypole. It's a European tradition, and it's quite interesting because I. We have a maypole in Austria, and in Swedish it's called Maistang or Midsommarstang. And maypole, how it is in Austria, trying to explain this. So it's a huge, a very big tree, but it doesn't have any branches anymore. So And in the wood, there are carved symbols, so it's just nicely decorated in terms of you carve stuff in. And there's usually like a tiny, tiny piece of leaves and branches on top still and you set it up in Austria like there's also always a celebration for it's called Maibaum in German which is May tree and Maypole is literally like the English translation and you set it up on the 1st of May in Austria and then you have a big celebration as well but it's not connected to Midsummer but the Maypole in Sweden apparently is set up at Midsummer and yeah so they set that up and they raise it it's also it looks quite different the, the basics are the same like it's a huge tree but it is decorated with green stuff like i didn't see that many flowers but it's just in lush green it still doesn't have any branches okay. branches but it's covered in green and it has this uh the figure of a cross so that's different and because in Austria and in a lot of other countries, as far as I know, it's just one big tree. But in Sweden, once again, form of a cross. And they're on either side of the cross, you know, on the left and right far out branch thingy. <laughs> there are <laughs> yeah, wreaths I got you. below that. Like they're not atta they're not attached, but they're like part of it. Like they're wreaths just on either side. And that's okay. how you can imagine it. So it does look a big bit different but i thought it was really interesting that, that it was also called maypole so i have a question yeah. i guess mm -hmm. when you say tree it's not a tree as in literally rooted in the ground because you say that they put it up yeah no they so they is cut it like the a tree. wooden pole yeah it's a wooden okay. pole pretty much okay but you take it. you always choose a tree from the at least in austria you choose a tree from the forest that would be fitting then you cut it down 
then you remove the branches, remove the the wood on the outside so that you have a smooth surface, and then you carve stuff into it. But I say tree because okay. we always decide upon a tree and then cut it down. And I imagine it being the same. Okay, in Sweden. so every year it's a new it's a new one. Yeah, you yeah, don't yeah. Keep one mm, for years. Definitely. Years. Oh, okay, interesting. So yeah, but that's a quick connection between like Sweden and Austria. But I heard I, a friend of mine told me from hang- Hungary that it's also a thing in Hungary. And then I researched it because I actually did an Instagram story about the maypole being set up at the beginning of May. And that's when she responded to me that, hey, we have this as well in Hungary. And then I researched it and found out that it wasn't actually just Austrian, but it was a whole like European tradition. So yeah, maypole also in Sweden, but on midsummer. And after they raise the maypole, they the dancing begins. And they have really funny dances. And one of them is called the little frogs. And they lock their <laughs> hands on their lower backs and jump like a frog. And I saw the video. It looks really funny. And even the, the guy who narrated this video said that, yeah, he knows it looks really funny. But that's what's happening in Midsummer in Sweden. And you can only do that on Midsummer without looking stupid. But that's what people do. <laughs> and then they dance around the pole. I was going to say, if you do it any other time of year, you look like a fool. Yeah. But it is socially acceptable. So you got to take advantage of it. <laughs> you really got to do that. And they also play a lot of games afterwards. They also have a barbecue, for example. And games, you know, just literally the typical outdoor games you play at celebrations outside. I would say like Tax of War, Egg and Spoon Racing horseshoe tossing, boot throwing, or apple bobbing. So just the very basic games. And yeah, that's basically it about the Swedish Midsummer. And there's also, at the end of the video, they mentioned a really cool legend. And that's if you don't have a partner already, and if you pick seven different flowers and put them under your pillow, then you will dream of the person you will marry and they said, if you don't dream of the person you will marry, then you probably picked the wrong flowers. But I thought that was also a really cute legend. You know? <laughs> I was about to say, okay, I guess I'm going to go to uh, Sweden then. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta pick those flowers. Right about my, my dream guy. <laughs> and <laughs> one other thing I wanted to mention, as I did my research on Swedish Midsummer, it's, I think it's quite hilarious. So... You know, I'm not that surprised. But guess who made a video or more like a horror movie about Swedish Midsummer? Yes, the United States of America. So there is a movie <laughs> that's called Midsummer that is a horror movie and it's yeah, a US movie and I thought it was I was so literally going to ask you, have you heard of that movie? Cuz I was just, I was as soon as you said I was like, that sounds like that movie. No Does way you take, know about this. Did that take this. place in Sweden? No. Yeah, it was very popular. A lot really? of people really liked that movie. Yeah. It was like big, big big. I'm really surprised. I never heard about that before. So do you know the plot? Because I only watched the trailer because I I figured that you would ask me, oh, so what's it about? And I wanted to know the answer. (laughs) That's why I watched the trailer. Well, I don't, I mean, okay, so a little bit of a spoiler warning because I think generally this isn't a movie I'm ever going to watch because it's not my kind of movie. But from what I hear, it's kind of good to go in not knowing what you're going to get, you know? So don't spoiler us. Yeah, so if you plan on watching Midsummer, 
just don't even listen to a summary don't watch any reviews just watch it and enjoy it hmm. um but basically the the general plot is that the main character is in the middle of or she's just recently lost like either her father or someone very close to her so she's grieving so her friends basically all take her to this big trip to go to this midsummer festival in Sweden. But this is like a special one, I guess, that only happens every like 90 years because I was just looking at the Wikipedia page. Um, anyway, and so they and then they end up getting pulled into this like cult, essentially, mm. without really realizing it. Um, so it kind of has to do. I mean, it is kind of a horror movie, but it also is more kind of suspense with, you know, trying to get out of this cult and then it has that emotional aspect with how it works with her grief and everything like that so that's kind of the the dynamic in that movie i don't really want to make fun of the movie but i do want to mention that there was one scene in the trailer that i personally thought really funny or found really (laughs) funny there was this main character who was like what time is it and he was like and and this one Swedish guy was like, it's 9 p.m. And the main character was like, that's not possible. It's still so light outside. And then the Swedish guy was like, well, that's how it is here. You're in Sweden. <laughs> I just thought it was so funny because <laughs> I don't know. For everyone who doesn't know, uh, there are times in Sweden where I think they only get, as it's so, is like so not northern on geographical location, they either get. Like, their winters are really, really dark. They get a couple of hours of sunlight. And therefore, their summers, sometimes, you know, you go to bed at 12, at midnight. And it's light outside, like, the middle of the day. Because they're so far north. And as we talked about the tilting of the earth before, you know, if you're on the side, if you're if the tip of the earth is tilted towards the sun, no matter how much it turns around, like, the tip is always going to be disposed to sunlight right. pretty much. That makes sense because um, uh, here in Michigan, we, we end up getting pretty long summers. Like, sun didn't set to yesterday until 10, a little bit before 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get we get noticeably longer, longer days in up here than I do in, like, Nebraska. Hmm. So that's something I've just been thinking about recently. I really never paid that much attention to it until <laughs> obviously i started living somewhere else you know start thinking about those things more yeah. i guess you know what was one last thing i wanted to mention about summer solstice it was an austrian tradition i came across as i did the research which i kind of knew about but not really and you're gonna be so excited about this so i know that bonfires are a thing for summer solstice and a lot of regions you know and and just general like in a lot of places of the world and in austria as well but what i didn't know is or maybe i did know about it and just forgot about it but you told us about the wakayama festival which we watched in nara and they essentially set a hill on fire so it's a burning hill and it's just a tradition i don't know the roots of it but that's the main thing like a hill is on fire that's the spectacle and that's what we do at Summer Solstice. They have fires oh, right. on the hill. And I didn't realize you that. You talked about that. What? I feel like I, th- I feel like you told me about that before. No. Am I crazy? <laughs> no, I didn't know about I could have sworn you've told me about that before. That you had a similar tradition. Huh. Setting well, a crazy. hill on fire? Or I'm, or I'm a prophet. 
you maybe you are i can't remember i think once again i did know about the whole bonfire thing but it's, it's especially common in tyrol and i'm tyrol is a part of austria where it's very famous for the alps because it has the major part of the alps and it's okay. very famous for skiing so a lot of people in europe i think know about tyrol more than about austria because it's such a famous skiing region and that's where this tradition is mainly common to they don't set the whole hill on fire as they do in nara but they have fires up on the hill and that's for oh, summer solstice okay. and i didn't realize I that it was at summer solstice but it's not very common in my area as i don't live in the alps yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for doing all that, all of that course. research. I feel so enlightened. Um, I know there are some like old American traditions with solstice. I'm not very familiar with them. I have some friends who were really into them, but it's kind of an odd thing. But I know it has to do with fairies. Like fairies are supposed to come out on the summer solstice. I was telling you about this last week, I think. So I can't. I can't remember if I said it on air or not. But I know that's there's something like that. But it's really vague and, and niche and not very common so wait what was it i didn't catch like this idea like that you build fairy houses you build tiny little houses kind of like what they do in iceland um specifically for the summer solstice because that's when the fairies are supposed to like come out or something like that. i forgot that it was for summer solstice i was so (laughs) confused for a second but yeah you you did (laughs) combine that with summer solstice yeah that's so cool fairies fairy houses i didn't come across i wish i knew more about it which i'm really surprised about well I d- it's just not a very big thing you know i mm. feel like it's kind of like a remnant from our more historical past that isn't really ever oh. talked about or practiced in any way anymore except by very very select people so very specific or... tradition but i still think it's so cool yeah. building small elf houses <laughs> i know they're really cute it's kind of becoming a popular thing not because anyone actually genuinely believes in the fairies but just because they're cute in concept to have little tiny houses oh, in the woods. Sorry, I yeah. said elves before because I was still in the Iceland episode in my head. <laughs> no, it's okay. Fairies. Potato, potato. Potato, potato. Tomato, tomato. Uh, <laughs> if you have anything to distribute distribute to this conversation, whether it's tomatoes or tomatoes or fairies or elves or whatever, <laughs> you can contact us on our official email address, which is aircastlespodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, you can find us at aircastlespod. And that's it for our handles and how you can reach us. And it's time for German with Joanna, right, Olivia? Yeah. <laughs> you love I this segment, it. right? <laughs> I got it. I do love it. I do love the segment, but it also makes me feel bad. Just a <laughs> you shouldn't. I know I shouldn't. It's my it's my own problem. I'll stop <laughs> complaining. Okay, so the phrase of the day is I really like this one actually. It's etwas durch die Blume sagen. And Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a bit longer, I'm really oh. sorry. But I really like That's this one. Okay. So it's literally translated it is to say something through the flower and oh that's so cute yeah it's really cute and it's similar translations i found was to say something in a roundabout way so an example i came up with is so it's basically not being direct so 
if, you know, a friend of mine tells me, you know, I think a different colored dress would complement your eyes more and would suit your body type better, then I would tell you afterwards, you know what, she basically told me through the flower that the dress looked ugly on me. Oh, okay, interesting. So, yeah, I really like this phrase because it's... So, like, you say something subtly and then... It's usually, you usually then tell someone behind someone else's back. Like, not in a negative way, but it's like, you know, she basically told me through the flower that she doesn't like this or that. But she said it in a very nice way, but I got what she meant by that. Mm, okay, yeah. I yeah. love that. <laughs> so, also, I want to pick out the world, uh, world, <laughs> the word Blume, because... It's once again a very common word because it means flower. And I just wanted you to know that flower is Blume in German. <laughs> so wait, say it again. Yeah, I'm going to say it again. Etwas. You want to repeat etwas? after me? Yeah. Etwas. Yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> etwas. Durch. Durch. Die Blume. Durch. Ja, durch. Die Blumen. Die Blume sagen. Die Blume sagen. Etwas durch die Blume sagen. Etwas durch die Blumen sagen. I swear, your pronunciation is getting so much better. It's incredible. What was the last word? Sagen. Sagen. Yeah. Blume sagen. Yeah. Okay. I'm Got honestly it. so shocked how good your pronunciation has gotten. I feel I'm feeling good for this particular phrase, probably because there are no R's. <laughs> <laughs> there is there there's one R durch. There's D U R C H oh. durch. Durch. Yeah, that's fun. Etwas durch die Blumen sagen. And once I feel like if I say it fast enough, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's kind of like Japanese, where I get to a point where as long as I just say it fast enough, it doesn't really matter if I say it. <laughs> But I think for this particular one, it's really impressive because I, at the beginning you had a bit of trub, uh, trouble with the ch sound, the durch, and which yeah. is completely normal because there are always phrases or le uh, letters or combinations of letters which you don't have in your native language and you don't really have that in English. So it's so no. cool that mm -hmm. you, because you got it straight away, durch. So durch. you can give yourself a pat on the shoulder there. I will. Pat on the back. <laughs> okay, I guess that's it. I will try to not tell you stuff through the flower. Etwas durch die Blume sagen. Because I want to be honest with you, Olivia. And I'm not going to talk oh, around stuff. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, so no, no tea, no shade, <laughs> just facts. Exactly. And that's it. We're not going <laughs> to say stuff through the flower. No tea, no shade, just facts. <laughs> because we're up we're about being real in this podcast <laughs> yeah so if you want to hear more honest research <laughs> at least us trying our best <laughs> in researching different topics tune in again next friday and yeah we're gonna talk to you soon and tschüss und bis bald see you space cowboy
someday we'll do a musical episode. It'll happen. We need to take singing lessons beforehand. <laughs> no, I was about to say, I'm a pretty much a lost cause. I've been doing choir pretty much on and off since <laughs> I was maybe five. It's not getting any better. <laughs> <laughs> I have never tried it. Maybe I'm... Maybe I have potential, but very likely not. <laughs> you do remember, because you're gonna you're gonna become a, a hit sensation oh, true, overseas. True. I forgot right? in Australia. I forgot yeah. about my potential and about my future career Keep in your Australia. Eyes on the prize, man. That's your <laughs> destiny.